I don't know, is it ego? Is it what? But you, but you feel kind of silly or stupid to say, no, I'll just sit here in my dark truck, you know, in the freezing cold till my crew comes back in what, three, four hours, you know, and so all these conflicting thoughts and emotions were ripping through my head in, in seconds. And so I get in and, and I guess a lot of women find themselves in this situation, maybe reluctant, but they get in. And um, things start to get creepy at that point, especially when he misses the turnoff to the seismic camp. Oh. And uh, yeah, and then tells me, well, it's a nice night and I thought we should go for a ride. Oh and, God uh, almighty. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'm here, you know, I made it out alive. Hey there, my fellow sophisticated creatives. Welcome to JCV Art Studio from the dressing room. My name is Joanna, and I have been up from 1 a.m. to 4 a.m. thinking about everything. So I'm a little punchy this morning. <laughs> so anyways, one of the things I've been, I was thinking about was this podcast. And I'm thinking about a name change. Uh thinking of a name change uh, to either from the dressing room or from the studio. And I'm hoping to add a poll um, to this podcast. So, and I'm going to ask the question about the name and hopefully the poll will work. If it doesn't, please email me. And it has to do with marketing and branding and um, what people remember, okay? Like, will you remember a long title such as JCV Art Studio from the dressing room? Or will you remember from the dressing room or from the studio? Okay. So today I have from Alberta, Alice Biena. Her third Georgia Night Mystery is out. Um, the holiday season, people, it's coming up. Uh-huh. Yeah, I know. Time's flying by. And a mystery novel is always a great gift under the Christmas tree. Or if you don't have a Christmas tree, it's always a great gift. Now, Alice is a member of the Sisters of Crime, the Crime Writers of Canada, and the Alberta Writers Guild. She is multi-published. And she is the author of the Georgia Knight Mystery Series. Her debut novel was a 2016 Arthur Ellis Award finalist for unpublished crime novel. She has a Bachelor of Science degree in biology, be, not biology, sorry, geology, G, geology. She was a trailblazer for Canadian women 
conducting field exploration programs in remote areas of Canada. And I swear there's a scene in this story which I'm going to ask her about remote areas. Alice, welcome. I always enjoy our conversations. It's good to see and hear you. Yeah, hi, Joanna. I always enjoy our conversations as well. So thanks for having me back. Good, good. Now, we're going to talk about book three, Three Dog Night. God, I'm just looking at that and I'm thinking, was that intentional? The three with it being book three and having the title start with three? <laughs> just hit me. No, I didn't notice that till you just mentioned it now. <laughs> I, I, I need to operate on less sleep. <laughs> okay. Okay. So anyways, so, but this is book three, but are you working on book five now? Yeah, I, uh, I am. I, book four is finished. Uh, it's called Night Vision. And uh, it's going to be released in early March of next year. And uh, I just finished book five, like just finished book five. And uh, I'm going to be shipping it off to my editor next week. Yeah. I'm just writing March down. (laughs) Bear with me. That's exciting news. That's exciting when you ship, you know, you send it to the editor. Like that's that's a a step. That's cool. Yeah, Yeah, that's a big step. Okay, so what is, and I'm curious, because I'm starting book three, and um, I, I'm not happy with my word program, because I resaved some pages for a critique. And it, it, something's not working with my word, because then what it did is it resaved the original. And so now I'm missing a few pages, but it's early, early, early stages. So I'm not going to totally freak out. But anyways, sorry. What is different about writing Three Dog Night compared to the first two books? Has it been more difficult? Has it been easier? A combination of the two? Um, I find sometimes the more knowledge you gain, the more difficult it becomes to do what you love to do. Yeah, isn't that true? Um, That's a a great question, Joanna. You know, I found it easier in some ways and more difficult in others. So um, it was easier in that I already know my protagonist quite well. I know what George is going to do. I know how she's going to react in certain situations. And uh, that's also true for the one or two characters who have a returning role in, uh, in the series. But what was different about writing Three Dog Night was um, that was when I realized that I needed to be true to the series. And um, so I've written each book that it can be read in any order, it could be read as a standalone. Uh, But now that I'm developing a bit of a fan base and and there's people out there that have read, you know, uh, one or more of my previous books, you know, I want them to have you know, they have certain expectations from me, you know, and the Georgia Knight uh, mystery series, you know, they, they want to have the same kind of experience um, and read the same kind of mystery that, that they read in, in book one and two, um, and hopefully fell in love with. I mean, I know that's what I do. I mean, it's why I have favorite authors, right? It's, it's, I have certain expectations of what I'm going to get when I pick up one of their books. 
Yeah. And uh, so I'm writing book three and suddenly I'm questioning everything. And, you know, at night, right? You know, is it too serious? You know, uh, is there just the right touch of humor? You know, what's happening with her and her friend, Mike? You know, are they ever going to get involved with each other uh, romantically? And uh, what about Lewis as Agora? And in, in Three Dog Night, things are starting to heat up with him. You know, are they going to forge, try to forge a, a longer term relationship? Um, and as you asked me, you know, a, a podcast ago or so ago, is, is Georgia ever going to get a nice car to drive? Yes. <laughs> so, uh, you know, uh, suddenly, instead of just worrying about the um, story arc for the current book that I'm writing, I have started and I started to with book three, look at developing a story arc for the whole series. Oh, wow. And uh, yeah, that was the the, the more complicated part. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Is I'm th and that's something I'm going to have to think about because like I'm working I like you. I wanted each individual book. I didn't want someone to feel that they had to read the book from book one. But right. thinking about the arc of the series. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, um and it's funny you should say that because you I asked you, is she ever going to get a nice car? <laughs> and I had a reader say to me, is Jade ever going to meet a nice guy? <laughs> right? well, <laughs> you know? And we, we will talk about that. Yeah. So can you give us a hint about Three Dog Night and where we are picking up on George's journey? Yeah, of course, I'd love to. So in Three Dog Night, so by by book three, she's had, you know, a year and a half, close to two years of uh, PI experience. And um, in, in Three Dog Night, she's hired by uh, a woman named Laura Brad Bradley to look into her brother Stephen's uh, murder. So it's been two months since he's been murdered. And Laura's grown frustrated with the police department's sort of lack of progress, you know, on, on the case. So Stephen was this high-tech mogul who uh, basically finds entrepreneurs who are developing, you know, really new cool technologies, and he helps find the capital that they need to bring their innovations to market. So he he's a pretty high-tech guy, and he lives in a really high-tech house, and, you know, it's wired. It's just one of these smart homes. He's got cameras and security everywhere. And uh, the newspapers have dubbed his assailant the Houdini killer because somebody managed to bypass you know, everything in his house and uh, got in, killed him and got out with essentially uh, not being seen or, or, or leaving a trace. So uh, Georgia starts her investigation and uh, she pretty much quickly um, comes to discover that everybody, pretty much everybody named in Stephen's will as one of his beneficiaries had some kind of motive, you know, to see him dead. And um, and then on top of this in the story, there's a series of brutal storms that are hammering the east side of the Rockies and uh, that she has to deal with. And she manages to also pick up a stalker. <laughs> so, you know, just to make life interesting for her. Yeah, yeah. So are you, inter are you interested in doing a reading or do you want to keep going sure. with the questions? Sure, I, I could read a couple of pages if you would like. Sure. Okay, so I'm, I'm just going to read the start of the book, actually. And, uh, you know, maybe for two or three minutes, if that's okay. Perfect. So here it is. Um, 
I've always been fascinated by the ingenuity of humans. So I shouldn't have been surprised when I discovered that someone had found yet another way to kill people. But right now, I was trying to figure out which way to insert my passport into the automated border control system at Calgary's new arrival, E-Gate. The woman peering over my shoulder jostled me for a third time. I pulled out my passport and retrieved the machine printout. The washed out image on cheap paper showed a dark haired woman with shadows under her eyes. I looked like a crack whore on her way to prison. I sailed through several gates and barriers, pleased at the efficiency of the system, yet somewhat perturbed that the scanners accepted the photo as a good enough likeness of me to let me pass. <laughs> I handed the photo to a waiting border service guard at the last security point and smiled. He took it without so much as giving me a glance, and the last set of doors opened with a hiss. I entered the concourse. I didn't bother glancing at the sleepy-eyed bystanders waiting for loved ones. I knew no one would be waiting for me. The whole place was chillingly hushed. The shops all closed for the night. Reaching the end of the corridor, I stepped onto the escalator and rested my bag on the handrail. I glanced at my watch and groaned. I was meeting Laura Bradford in less than five hours. Shen told me why she needed a private investigator when she called to set up the meeting, just that she might. I was hoping she'd bring me something I could dig my teeth into, something more complicated than tailing an errant spouse or running down a deadbeat dad refusing to send child support payments. I stepped off the escalator, turned right and entered the frigid corridor between the airport terminal and the parkade. A jumble of rubbish lay against one wall. I shook my head to clear the brain fog that had formed from too many hours of droning engines and mindless chit chat of my unduly social seatmate. It's not rubbish. I could now make out muddled sneakers sticking out from underneath a ratty blanket. A newspaper led lay spread over the face. I shifted the weight of the carry-on, pushed back a strand of hair and hurried past. The elevator at the end of the corridor seemed to take forever. A noise made me glance over my shoulder, but there was nothing there. Nothing other than the human bundle. Anxious to get into my car and start the heater, I stepped into the elevator as soon as the doors hissed open. I found myself mentally calculating what my bank balance would be after the latest job. I had no regrets in leaving my previous career as a lab analyst behind, but the uncertainty of the next paycheck was something I was still trying to get used to. The doors opened and I stepped outside into the dim light of the parkade. The buzz of the occasional fluorescent light broke the eerie quiet. My footprints, my footsteps echoed on the frosty pavement. The air was colder here, biting through my jacket. A bank of lights in the next aisle flickered and went out. Just the storm, nothing more, I reminded myself. The pilot had mentioned an Alberta clipper was moving in, bringing in a fresh dump of snow. I stopped, suddenly alert, all my senses in overdrive. Whose footsteps were behind me? I glanced over my shoulder at the ghostly rows of vehicles and held my breath, nothing. I hurried along, the footsteps continued. I veered left and reached the open parkade wall, peering into the lit corridor below. The human bundle was gone. I pulled back in the shadows, waiting for whoever was following to pass. No one appeared. Searching the aisles for some sign of human presence and finding none, I moved on. The footsteps resumed. I unzipped the top of my bag, my previous exhaustion gone. My fingers closed in on the cold metal of my car keys. Slinging my purse higher on my arm, I picked up my pace. The steps behind me quickened. 
My eyes swept from side to side, searching for some sign of him. Behind me, the footsteps grew faster, louder. My feet pounded on the pavement, my breathing ragged, loud in my ears. Section eight, section eight, where is it? Where is it? I grabbed the car door. My carry-on slid down my arm and I inserted the key. My car is scanning the, my eyes scanning the cars around me. The footsteps had stopped. My hand shook as I turned the key in the ignition. Certain some evil apocalyptic creature looked nearby, ready to drag me from the car. I shoved the car into reverse and my eye caught a piece of my eye caught a piece of paper jammed under the windshield wipers. It would have to wait. Backing out, I laid rubber and reached the exit ramp, my sense of dread still on high. Faster, faster, my brain urged as my car entered the darkened tunnel. My eyes jumped back and forth from the rearview mirror to the beams of light cutting the darkness in front of me. Tires squealing, I rounded each spiraling curb down the concrete ramp to the main level. My car shot out into the from the tunnel into the frost-laden night. Nothing appeared in the rear view mirror. I pulled up to the pavement machine and got out of the car, inserted a credit card and snatched the paper from under the windshield wiper. I glanced back at the ramp as another vehicle emerged. His headlights caught the snowflakes floating silently to the ground. I slowed my breathing. Too many late night horror movies. I unfolded the papers I waited for the machine to spit out my card and staggered back. Each heartbeat pulsed wildly in my neck. The machine spit out a receipt and flashed green. Feeling lightheaded, I grabbed the receipt, threw, it on the, threw the paper on the passenger seat and climbed in. I swallowed hard as my eyes flitted back to the paper. My jaw clenched and a muscle twitched under my left eye. Why won't my past stay where it belongs? Staring back at me, centered in a crudely drawn black heart, was a newspaper photo of my dead parents. So that's how the story starts. And the tension that I pick up in that first scene, it's all throughout the book. And <laughs> oh my God, I've like, I, you know, how you write about her running, running. Right hearing the footsteps, the yeah. travel bag, how many of us have been running even just to catch a plane and that travel bag is sliding down your arm. And, you know, right. like you've, we've been, yeah. you're there, right? Yeah. Wow. And um, in Victoria, there's a, a, a car park where it is like a cylinder and you're going around in a circle as you're going down. And uh, God, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> very yeah, good very good Allison like I say that you have that tension throughout thank you yeah so having heard that scene I'm wondering do you have any favorite scenes or scenes that you had you walked away from and the reason why I say and shiver because it was the other night um <laughs> everyone's gonna think I don't get much sleep I've been doing really well lately except for this week okay <laughs> but like about two nights ago you know I the previous night I hadn't slept well and I was reading your book and you know when you're overtired you're cold right and I'm reading that scene where she gets the first delivery of black dahlias at her apartment and she's she gets the note and she runs outside and there's snow and you just, you say black. We know she's out on her like little deck. You say black, 
cold snow and I'm like, oh, <laughs> right? I could feel it. So like I said, are there any favorite scenes that you had in this book? Well there, well, there was one. There was one that kind of stood out for me. I think when I wrote it, and um, it's actually the one where she goes off um, to try to locate one of Stephen's beneficiaries named in the will, and it takes her to this remote hunter's cabin near Great Lake, British Columbia. <laughs> and uh, you know, you you mentioned earlier that uh, yeah, I used to work uh, in in a lot of the. I, I used to work in Northern Canada and up up in the territories in the Arctic. And so, um, yeah, this scene just drew, drew back some, some of the memories I had of being in some of these remote areas and how one can totally freak oneself out, <laughs> you know, in those situations. So that one, that one, you know, I think I really drew on some of my uh, own experiences when I wrote that particular scene. Okay. Okay. And we'll talk about that scene. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I found the descriptions and I, I really would love to read this one description from your book. Okay. Okay. So Chloe is one of the characters. Okay. And I'm just, it, it, this says it all. I'm not even going to say anything more about Chloe. Chloe came flying out of the apartment building, coat over her arm, hair in disarray. She skidded to a stop and hopped on one foot while fitting the remaining shoe she was carrying on the other. Holding her purse straps in her mouth, she fit one arm through the sleeve of her coat, then the other, purse flapping against her chest like a waddle. Once in her coat, she gripped her purse with her left hand and flicked her hair from under her coat collar with the other. She slid and slipped down the sidewalk until she reached a beat up red and white right, Mini right. Cooper. <laughs> and I got to tell you, I read that and I thought, okay, so when did Alice see me when we lived in Vic West dashing to work <laughs> before the pandemic? That's too funny. I can totally see you doing that too, Joanna. <laughs> uh, there were times where it was, yeah. I, I had a, my backpack because I would walk to work, which was fantastic. But that means you had to leave at a certain time, okay? And I remember, like, arms through the coat sleeves, backpack on my arm, you know, going out the door, locking, you know, throwing the purse on, and down the steps. And I read this, and I thought, oh, man, I've been there. <laughs> I've been yeah. there. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, that was, that's a great scene. A great scene, yeah. and I really enjoyed it. Thank yeah. You. So we, we touched upon, you were saying about your work, your work. Mm -hmm. right? And, um, yeah. I am picking up a really bad echo from my side of things here, Alice. So I'm just going to adjust the mic and hopefully that's better. Okay. Okay. So there are scenes in this book and I'm thinking about Georgia and you talk about drawing upon your experiences at work and her tire gets slashed. And there are these two men in town. She, so she's in this town. There are these two men, and I don't trust them. <laughs> and I just kept thinking to myself, Georgia, get back to the city, okay? Because I, I, I feel the, the tension in that scene. 
And I'm just like, get back to the city. You're going to be safe <laughs> in the city. There's more people in the city. And I was wondering, have you experienced that in that scene where you have a flat tire and you're in this small town? Yeah. Well, I haven't had tire trouble, but I did find myself in a similar situation. And, um, and I think some of that I've drawn on, you know, when Georgia gets herself into these situations. And so I remember this one time I was working up in the Northern Rockies of British Columbia, you know, that area between uh, Prince George and Chetwin, uh, BC. And uh, the truck I drove uh, was, it was driving broke down and I was about 10 kilometers from camp. This was fall time already, and we had finished up our summer exploration program, and there were only four of us left in camp. So really, the camp had been dismantled and, and sent off, and the camp was essentially a trailer with the four of us uh, working and, and staying there. And uh, we were scouting out our drilling locations for the winter drilling season. And because there was only four of us, um, and the kitchen facilities and everything went with the, with when we dismantled camp we had made arrangements to drive up the road you know about 25 kilometers there was a seismic camp working there and we had arranged to like have dinner there so we were essentially paying them you know so we could go up and and eat at their camp and that was where I was heading when the when the truck broke down um, so the other three crew me members of our crew had gone up ahead with the other truck because they went up a little early and they had planned to stay later, maybe play pool at the other camp because they had still had some facilities and our camp was just this trailer. And um, so there I was, I found myself stuck um, on what was essentially a logging road. And of course, this is the days when there's no cell phones, no communications, and it's already dark. And I see these headlights coming down the road from the direction of our camp, you know, which was really rare because there was nobody you know, west of us, and uh, there was really nothing out there. So this truck comes up and stops behind me. And, you know, so there's this heart pounding moment, I'm sitting in this truck, and this truck pulls up and, you know, you have this like, oh, I don't like this at all. And uh, this guy comes up to my truck, and he starts talking to me, you know, trucks not working. Is that your camp back there? Yes, it is, I tell him. He says, I can give you a lift back there. And I said, but, you know, I'm not keen on having the stranger drive me back to essentially a deserted trailer in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, so yeah. I, I said, no, I, I've been heading up to the seismic camp up ahead where my co-workers are already waiting for me. Yeah. So I made sure he knew that. And uh, he says, yeah, I, I work at the seismic camp, you know, jump in and I'll give you a lift. And um, this is the moment, isn't it, Joanna? I mean, I, I think a lot of people have been in this. You know, part of me wants to trust them. You know, yeah. don't we want to trust our good, kind fellow human beings who have stopped to help buy, uh, helped us out in a, in, in a tough situation? You know, but the highway of tears runs just south of where I am. And there have been 80 women that have been found missing or murdered along that stretch of highway and so you know there's the other part of me that's going uh this is not great but my choices are limited and then something else kicks in and I don't even know how to put a word to this but it's almost this I don't know is it ego is it what but you but you feel kind of silly or stupid to say no I'll just sit here in my dark truck you know in the freezing cold till my crew comes back in what three four hours you know and so all these conflicting thoughts and emotions were ripping through my head in, in seconds. 
And so I get in, and, and I guess a lot of women find themselves in this situation, maybe reluctant, but they get in. And um, things start to get creepy at that point, especially when he misses the turnoff to the seismic camp. Oh. And uh, yeah, and then tells me, well, it's a nice night and I thought we should go for a ride. Oh and, God uh, almighty. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'm here, you know, I made it out alive, but I do remember that awful feeling of wanting to stand my ground, not feel intimidated, wanting to trust this individual and uh, afraid for my life at the same time, you know, and uh, you know, I suspect there's many of your listeners out there who have probably found themselves in kind of a similar situation. Yeah. So, yeah, no. Okay, Alice. Because yeah. like, like I said, that scene with the flat tire, I'm just like, I don't trust them. Don't trust them. Right, just, right, right, right. Get the yeah. hell out of Dodge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I agree. There's a, there's a, you know, and, and maybe people who've grown up in the country and live in the country, you know, would kind of laugh at us who grew up in the city, but, but I'm kind of with you. I, I like, uh, I like the fact that, you know, my neighbor's just two walls away, you know, yeah. my exterior and his exterior, you know, and, yeah. and there's always this feeling whether it's correct or not, you know, that somebody's around that we know that can help us. And it's, it's really funny. I think that, that feeling of, we trust people we know, you know, probably comes from, thousands of years in our evolution you know it was it was critical that you stuck with your tribe you know and uh so yeah there's this real stranger danger kind of thing that happens you know yeah. especially when you're in 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 a situation that's remote and there's nobody else around but the stranger you know? yeah yeah okay so in your novels there's always like i like it the, the multiple storylines right now we've got, there's the one storyline, Stalker. Um, George is also thinking that her past is coming back to haunt her. And I was right. one, and then you have the main murder storyline. Right. So was there any storyline which came to you first? Um, well, even though I started the book with the, the Stalker, yeah. um, it was actually the other story that came to me first. And uh, I always, I've always wanted to do sort of a modern twist on the locked room mystery. And I, I, I loved locked room mysteries. I've always loved those. Um, but then I got to thinking, well, how would one pull that off today with, you know, Alexa and, and, you know, security cameras at our front door and all our security systems and our monitors and things beeping at us. And, and so this modern, highly wired, secured home sort of became the setting, you know, for the main story. And, and then I built, you know, I thought, well, who would live in one of these homes? And so I, I built the story for this smart, sophisticated, you know, wealthy uh, man, you know, that's kind of at the peak of his career. And he's got a real cool job, you know, and uh, he gets exposed to a lot of uh, cool technologies as well. And um, so, you know, that was sort of the main story. And then and then I also thought, well, there's George's personal life and what's happening there. And, and I thought, well, yeah, like she's having a hard time leaving her past um, in the past. And it, it, it occasionally comes back to bite her. So um, that's when the story for the stalker idea came to mind. Cool. Okay. Well, one second, Alice. 
Okay. That poor dog needs a run. <laughs> oh, dear. Dog needs a run. <laughs> he's and, saying, hurry up, hurry up. Yeah. And, and he's, done. he's done yeah. with construction. Okay. He's just done with it. <laughs> so, um, cause I know with, with this third one, it's almost like the second storyline came together really fast. Okay. And I, then I was finding myself a bit stuck with what I wanted for like the main murder storyline. And right. I found that once I changed like the trope and the motivation, yeah, it, it then it was like dominoes. It came together. So, mm -hmm. and I'm, people aren't going to see this. I'm going to show you. Right. So uh, yeah, just one second here. So this is what people can't see this. So I'm going to try to describe. I'm holding up to Alice sketch paper that's got lines and scribble all over the place. And uh, yep. that's how I plot. <laughs> so is that how you yeah. plot or are you more more of a detailed plotter? Yeah, no, what you showed me there is exactly <laughs> what I have, a big, large piece of paper. I usually have like in the circle, in the middle, you know, the inciting incident, somebody's murdered, whatever, right? And yeah. and then like you, I have like arrows going left and right and all over the place. And, and um, you, you know, so I like to like, that's kind of how I get the whole premise of the story down. Um, I, I might go one step further than you. I, I do... Do, usually do an outline but it's it's really strange I do a very very sort of brief outline and I've never yet outlined right to the end of the book I usually outline you know to the midpoint or slightly after and it's just enough for it, it to sort of cement the story in my head and yeah. then and then yeah. I just start writing you know yeah. and um but you know when I when I do reach this point you know, in the story where it's like, okay, you know, it's now or never, I need to make a decision about who the killer is. Yeah. Because sometimes it turns out not to be the person, you know, that I first thought would be when I started drafting out the outline. Yeah. And um, so at that point, I, I go back to my <clears throat> outline, and, and I'll update it because what I, you know, the first chapters that I'd outlined, because, you know, what I've written sometimes deviates, you know, from, from what I started with. And, um, and then, I will outline the remaining 10 or 12 chapters I need to get to the end of the, of the book. And I really write down only four things when I'm doing an outline and that's, you know, where the, where the scene takes place, um, who the main characters are in the scene, like one or two main characters, not, um, not um, everyone yeah. um, in, that, that appears in the scene. And then what's revealed in the scene to the reader like so in other words why is this scene even needed oh, and so um, then the fourth <laughs> thing is I put what what is the emotion or the state of mind that whatever happens in that scene create for the two one or two main characters in that scene and so like you I you know I look at this emotion as really the motivation yeah. because you know, it's the emotion of the characters that are really going to drive kind of what happens next. And so by doing that, if I ever am stuck, it's sort of if I do that drafting process, then it then I read through these emotions that have been happening scene by scene by scene. And it helps sort of pull pull me through any places where I am stuck because I let those 
emotions take of the characters take over. Yeah. Um, you know, even 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 whatever I had plotted, like it, it you know, that's why I say it changes because I don't necessarily stick to the plot. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. That's that's when the character is telling you yeah. what the story is going to be, how it's right, going to unfold. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so then, just that's perfect. Um, kind of leading into my next question, um, like I, I, I don't want to give away who <laughs> right now who I'm thinking my murderer is going to be. Right. Um, I've written a few pages, and. I have thought about the murderer during my runs and my walks and um, what I have written, some of it will never make it into the book. Okay. It's just whether it's, it's you call it backstory, but it, whether it's me getting to know this character. Mm -hmm. So do you, you have character pages that never see the light of day? Um, oh gosh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh gosh, definitely. I, uh, I have gotten carried away with some of my characters <laughs> and, you know, maybe someday it'll be a short story somewhere, but, but uh, yeah, I do, I do the same thing and it helps me sort of understand what this person might or might not do. And it makes it easier than me sitting back as an author and trying to rack my brains as to, you know, what the plot's going to be like. And so, you know, I, I do develop these characters and uh, and backstories for them. I even have whole characters that, that don't make it in the book at all. Okay. And, uh, you know, in, in Three Dog Night, I had this, you know, marvelously delightful character <laughs> that I wrote. Her name is Wanda. And uh, Georgia had interviewed her. Um, she's a frazzled um, mother with young children. And she used to go to high school with the victim. And so Georgia's sort of digging into his past. And uh, but in the end, you know, I got rid of Wanda completely. And, and there's this uh, saying in the writing community, isn't there, Joanna? Like, you have to be ready to kill your darlings. <laughs> and uh, even though I liked Wanda, I realized that she, you know, I, I could take her out of the story and nothing changed. And, uh, you know, she only offered Georgia like one piece of information. And uh, I decided that, you know, I didn't want to bog down the story you know, and have a lot of reading for, you know, one tiny clue. And so I gave that information to Greg Kowalski, who yeah. owned the Kabasa King Sausage Shop. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he's the one that that revealed the information that I had originally intended Wanda to reveal. So, yeah, so yeah I, I have characters dead left, right and center. <laughs> you know, my office is littered with them. Aww. Yes. That's awesome. Yeah. That is yeah. awesome. I love you. I love hearing that. I love hearing that. So, and another one of your scenes, and I was really happy that you came on the humor podcast. Oh, hold on. So come on, buddy. There's that painting that they're doing. One second. Okay. Oz, come on. Just one second. Yep, that's okay. So like I, I mentioned, I, uh, I'm really glad you came on the Humor Podcast. And, you know, you have all this tension. And this grocery store scene, it's all things I can relate to. Okay. So uh, I got I to read this, this bit here. Okay. Oh, so, thank you. Please do. Yeah. yeah. So Georgia is in the grocery store. And, uh, okay. So 
I and giving a heads up, I have got Ozzy on my lap because the painters are driving him nuts outside. So here we go. Okay. I entered the grocery store, my face bright red, my thighs numb. I slid a gloved hand across my nose as it and everything else started to defrost. Grabbing a basket, I traipsed over to the interior aisles, ignoring the voice in my head telling me to stick to the outer ones. I was reading the fine print on a yogurt container when a flash of gray at the end of the aisle caught my eye. A gray coat slid by again while I was in the cereal aisle. Proceeding to the frozen food section, I stood in wait. My brain examined every detail fed to it by my peripheral vision as I stared blindly at the frozen vegetables. <laughs> the gray coat entered the aisle from my left. I turned and it did too, disappearing back around the corner. I rushed down the aisle and rounded the end, but no one was there. I jogged forward, peering down each aisle as I passed. With a last glance over my shoulder, I turned the, down the last aisle and fell over someone crouched down by the bottled water. Stumbling forward, I regained my balance and turned, an apology ready on my lips. Sorry, miss, are you all right? sniffled a thin voice. An internal groan sounded in my head. I knew that voice. An annoying tone with lisps, S's, and P's that came out sounding like thizz and usually followed by fine droplets of spit. Bernie Ing. He had signed up for my private investigator course and had driven me nuts from the get-go when he introduced himself as Burn Ing. Burn Ing, ball of love. I fought the urge to keep my head down and run, except he'd know I'd recognized him. I shuddered and turned. Bernie, right. Well, I'll be if it isn't the inconceivably I can't spit. Prodigious? Yes, prodigious. Prodigious Ms. K. Sorry, I didn't see you there, I muttered as my eyes swept the length of the aisle. A frazzled woman with one kid in her shopping cart and a second one making loud demands at her side pulled cans of something into her cart. I looked back at Bernie. No worries, Ms. K. He leaned in dangerously close. You shadowing someone? No, Bernie. Just picking up some items for dinner. Oh, me too, me too, he said scrunching his face into a sly smile. He licked the thick, his thick lips and winked. Well, I got to run. Nice seeing you, Bernie, I said as flatly as I could. Okie dokie. Nice bumping into you too, Ms. K. Get it? He snorted. Bumping into you? <laughs> this guy. <laughs> I, I get it, Bernie. I watched him wobble away. Bernie wasn't going to be a good private investigator. He was in love with the idea of becoming an investigator. I felt bad about in introducing the profession to him. Of course, there was still hope. Maybe he'd fail the private investigator's exam. <laughs> I, I giggled. I giggled. I did. I love God. We've all been there <laughs> with individuals, with 
bad jokes, <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, God. So the other thing was, like, did that scene, like, just kind of come to you or, like, drawing upon experiences? Because it, it was, like I say, there's lots of tension. So it was good to laugh. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, she's she's going to the store and there's been this horrible storm and, you know, so power has been down as, you know, she, so she's going to the store and, and I started off the scene, you know, really relying on my own experiences, you know, where you, where you walk through, you know, minus 30 below weather for a block or two and you can't feel your legs, you know, and, uh, you know, so I started off sort of describing how cold she was and she got in there and then, and then the rest of it just kind of, you know, rolled from there. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, yeah. And then the other thing with this book is George's love interest, you know, like Lewis. Louis right. Azagora, like that's I love that name. Okay, <laughs> and uh, what I like is with Georgia and her being your the heroine, she has this totally realistic approach analysis about whether she wants to pursue this relationship. Okay, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and um, it was refreshing. It was inspiring. Like I mean, I got from it that. Georgia's got things to do. And so then she's wondering, should she waste her time? You know, if this relationship is going nowhere. Okay. Right. And um, her rationalization is great. I th thought it was so in her character. So your, your thoughts about that. Um, why did you want to show that? Yeah, I, I think because, you know, it is a, it is a source of conflict for her in a, in a weird sort of way. Like you mentioned, um, George is her own woman. You know, she she wouldn't want to put aside her career, you know, and, and what she loves to do for someone else. So, and, and Azagor is a cop first, clearly, and, and you know, Lewis the man second, you know. Yeah. So it leaves her questioning two things, you know. Can this really be love if she's not willing to put her stuff aside yeah. for his stuff? But then also, you know, does she need, really need a guy sitting at home complaining to her about not being home long enough or in the evenings when she's out on her cases? And so, you know, she she's caught in this dilemma. And I know I, I had written a couple of um, lines uh, about their relationship in the story, if I can remember um, a couple of them. So I know at one point I had her say, you know, the problem was I wasn't sure I wanted to be with him yeah. or just yeah. with someone, you know, yeah. and, and so she's fighting this sort of within her, she, like you mentioned, she's a very realistic woman yeah. and she's mm -hmm. sort of saying, well, you know, do I, you know, is it him that I like or, or, or am I just looking for this companionship when, and if I need it, you know? And uh, yeah. yeah. So she's caught in this sort of dilemma about, you know, what, what she wants from her personal life and she's much more secure and confident in her knowledge of what she wants from her professional life yeah that's good it's really yeah. refreshing to see like yeah. it just it really is and <laughs> uh yeah and I know with my own I mean <laughs> any of the men in my novels that show up they are all expendable okay <laughs> 
it's not that I right it's not like I had this hate on for men it's just I'm taking more of a I know James Bond female approach like Georgia she's got things she's gonna do right and and, well I I agree I I agree Joanna like I think I think most you know we've all read the stories and you know I I really didn't want a heroine that you know, needed saving by a man. And I'm thinking, you know, I, I think she's got the smarts and the wherewithal to save herself. You yeah. Know? So, yeah. Yeah. Good. <laughs> good. Okay. Good. That's And like I said, that's refreshing. That's very refreshing. Yeah. So I had asked you uh, privately if you had written stories as a child. Right. <laughs> and then you volunteered and, and told me that yeah. you wrote a story in yeah. high school and yeah. it was titled Naked in the Sand. And uh, I was wondering if you cared to elaborate on that story. Yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> thankfully, there are only six copies of that story in existence. And, and uh, you know, something I certainly wouldn't publish today, but... Um, yeah, what happened there is I and, a, I and five uh, girlfriends went on a week-long camping trip at the end of grade 12. Yeah. Uh, we were all graduating and going off in different directions in our lives. And uh, so we went on this week-long camping trip. And, and um, I wrote Naked in the Sand and, and made six copies, <laughs> one for each of my friends. So like I said, there used to be only six copies, you know, out there. Hopefully now there's none. <laughs> but but uh, it's a fictionalized account of the week, which did involve a lot of sand, yeah. you know, a small degree of nakedness, usually <laughs> confined within the walls of our tents. Uh, it, it, it also involved a creepy late night car prowler, oh, um, wow. an annoying kid from the Bible camp uh, down the road from us, a twister that almost uh, took one of my friends carrying a ginormous beach umbrella and launched her into the air like Mary Poppins. Oh my God. And, uh, and a visit from a local cop. So, so uh, anyway, like I say, it was it was um, somewhat fictionalized, and uh, we all had a good laugh. And um, when I when we read it together, so yeah, it's, sounds like a great story. <laughs> okay, I don't I don't think it was, or I mean, <laughs> it was for what it was meant to be. But yeah, okay, and you know. The reason why I asked that question is because I think when you decide to write and you invest the time that you're investing and when you realize that you're going to become an author and you're in it for the long haul, mm-hmm. th- it's not play anymore. And I wanted to know, when did you, did you come to that conclusion or do you remember when you realized that, okay, I'm not this isn't a hobby anymore. This is, I'm, I'm doing this. Um, I, I, I do remember exactly. It was um, March, 2014. And, um, you know, actually, although I loved writing, reading, sorry, I, I didn't do a lot of writing and certainly not fiction, you know, in my early years. And, uh, but I, but I did love storytelling and I used to make up these bedtime stories for my kids, like just off the top of my head when they were little, you know, about a little boy named Bud Badinsky. And he was always getting into trouble. Uh, although his intentions were always good and, and the stories ended up, you know, 
everything was fine at the end. Um, you know, but it never really occurred to me that I could write fiction, you know, and certainly not, you know, do it as a career. And, um, but, you know, right around 1994, there were some changes, you know, where I was working and, and you know, the work itself was changing, the company was changing. And I started thinking about, you know, possibly a different career. And uh, I did love writing, although it was mostly technical at that point. So I started to dabble, I would say, in, in, in around 1994. And my intention always was to, you know, write a whole novel. But it seemed like I was letting life get in the way every time I pulled this out. And so I might write 20,000 words in a year and realize that at that rate, <laughs> at that rate, you know, it's going to take me a while. So, um, yeah, it took me almost 20 years to actually pull the pin on my consulting company and actually sit down and write. And, and when I did sit down in 2014, it was with the intention to actually, you know, I packed in my consulting career and I, I was committed to, to try to, you know, make a new career for myself. So, you know, and I've been trying ever since. <laughs> well, I think you're successful at it too. I mean, <laughs> thank you. It's, <laughs> yeah, it, you know, your books are really enjoyable. And like I said, the tension and, oh God, I remember that night when I was reading that cold scene and I, yeah. So, <laughs> okay. <laughs> thank okay. You. So what would you say is the greatest or best writing lesson you have learned over these past years yeah i i think it it's just right and i have a i have a quote on the top of my monthly newsletter i i don't know where it's from probably winnie the pooh or someplace <laughs> like that but it really resonated with me and so the quote says the best way is to just start and um I, I guess that's pretty much holds true for anything. And um, I think by doing, we, we, we learn the most. And uh, even in the years where I was like trying to write, you know, in my spare time, ha, 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 you know, um, and I wasn't getting much traction. And so what I've learned in the past five or six years is that, you know, there have been a couple of times where I've had to turn my attention to other people. Sorry, sorry. One, one, one second. Okay, Alice, continue. Okay, so there have been a few times where I had to turn my attention to other things, you know, and taken a month or two break. And that broke the rhythm of my writing and also the productivity. And, and I look at it kind of like, you know, when you put your bike away for winter, or at least I certainly do here in Calgary. And, uh, you, you know, um, it's like riding your bike again in the spring. You know, if you ride every day, you just hop on it without any thought and get going. But after, you know, a four or five month break away from riding the bike, you know, you're a bit wobbly and you can't re quite remember where, you know, the gears are on your, your bike. And so it, it's, it was like that for me. And so I find it's best if I just um, carry on and I try to write every day, five days a week, you know, come hell or high water. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, it sort of helps me keep the momentum and the rhythm and the ease of writing going. Yeah. And I, like he said, every day and whether it's, it's like now for me, yeah, I have a little notebook, which at nighttime I'll literally scribble things down mm -hmm. and it's that almost like rhythm of, okay, I'll scribble it down in the evening yeah, and because I'm still working for 
the the days are so numbered <laughs> okay um it's been there right i yeah. know what you're going through yeah yeah, yeah. but yeah scribble it down and then the next day you know if it's on my lunch hour or if it's after work typing it out on paper and then yeah. it, then it's and then if it's that practice of okay well print what you've typed and when right. you know, as soon as you put your, get that pen in your hand and you start reading what you've typed, that's where it starts getting better. Right. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, so Alice, my favorite question now, which I ask all the authors on my podcast, if Georgia stepped out of a restaurant after having a date with Azagora, what would she say to you? Okay, so I think she would say, well, Lewis, <laughs> got the handcuffs? No, sorry. <laughs> I think she would say, <laughs> sorry. It's okay. It's uh, I think she would say, I have no idea where we're going with this thing, whatever this thing is that we have going on between us, but I'm keen to find out. And um, the only thing that worries me is that you and I may be more similar than either of us imagines. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's very good. Okay. Okay. Well, Alice, we made it through this podcast with (laughs) (laughs) my printer buzzing in the background. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for coming back on. And um, I really do. I always enjoy chatting with you. So we will get something. If you're a game, you said you dropped the date, March 2022 for book four. So if you're if you're game of coming back on okay okay absolutely absolutely good well thank you and people well yeah check me out at jcvartstudio.net i will have alice your website what's your website again yeah it's www.alicevienia.com okay that will be in the show notes and um yeah we'll see. yeah you can come on and we'll we'll figure out what my new name's going to be <laughs> in in march awesome. right okay. awesome. yeah well it's been such a pleasure joanna i i really want to thank you and i always love being on your podcast podcast good well i'm trying <laughs> you know i'm always thinking about new listeners because if i get new listeners that means the guests who are on my podcast new listeners are exposed to the guests, right? So that's why I'm, I'm up at night because I'm thinking, always thinking about new right. listeners, right? Um, so uh, thank you. Excellent. Thank okay. You. Okay, Alice. Yeah. Catch yeah. you later. Thanks, Joanna. Okay. You bet. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.